Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love, and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. This is a warning that today's podcast contains graphic descriptions of murder and domestic violence that some people may find upsetting. It's a cold, dark December night in 1996 in the small, sleepy townland of Tourmoor in West Cork. Sophie Toscan Duplantier is living alone in her remote cottage. She is disturbed by a visitor, and the following morning she's found brutally murdered. There is one prime suspect. There was this figure against the light, like Heathcliff off the mirror. Over the next half an hour or so as we drove to the scene, he gave me extraordinary infill into what had allegedly happened. Lights going on and off in the house and the victim being in her night clothes, one boot on, half laced up. And even when Ian Bailey questioned me, when he said, come on, you're the, you're the crime correspondent, you tell me who, who's likely to have killed this person. So you're looking at somebody who's obviously a powerful person because the victim was overkilled. The murder weapons were just what was lying to hand. And uh, the scales only fell from my eyes, I have to say, when Ian Bailey was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. I'm Fionn Sheehan, and today on the Indo Daily, I'm joined by Ralph Regal and Senan Maloney, both of the Irish Independent, as they have both covered this mystery for 27 years, to look at the sudden death of Ian Bailey. We ask if this robs the family of Sophie Toscan Duplantier of justice. Ralph Regal, Ian Bailey's death, can you tell us about it? Yeah, he, uh, it was lunchtime on Sunday. He went out for a walk. He was living in a rented property in Bantry. And just at lunchtime on Barrack Street, he suddenly collapsed. His collapse was witnessed by a number of pedestrians who ran to his aid. He collapsed not too very far from uh, the the local fire station. So a number of firefighters arrived at the scene and they did everything they could to help him. A trained paramedic arrived and then an ambulance with more paramedics. And despite the very best efforts of everyone involved, they they weren't able to get a heart rhythm. Uh, I understand that pads were used in a bid to try and get 
some kind of electrical rhythm back and that that failed and he was pronounced dead before he could be transferred to Antry General Hospital. He was uh, 66 years old. In fact, he would have been 67 in six days' time. Was there a history of cardiac problems? When I first met him back in the late 90s, he was a tall, fit, very handsome man, raven black hair, very much had the look of a kind of a Shakespearean leading actor. The last time I actually met him was before Clonakilty District Court, where he was appealing a drug driving conviction. And the difference was absolutely shocking. He was stooped. He was gaunt, haggard. His face had a kind of a grey pallor about it. Um, whereas he was once very fastidious about his appearance, and um, some might even say vain and egotistical about his appearance, suddenly he was um, rather unkempt. And if you looked at him, he actually had an open-toed Moses-style sandals and wasn't wearing socks, and he was clearly a man who was unwell. Now, a short time after that, he suffered a number of heart attacks, and he was treated both in Bantry General Hospital and in Cork University Hospital. Now, I spoke to him after that, and what he told me was that doctors wanted to use stints uh, to try and address the cardiac issues that he had, but he also required bypass surgery. But his, he, he was physically un, so unwell that they couldn't perform the surgery. So the plan was that he would recover into the new year and then he would undergo that cardiac surgery. He's rather infamously associated with West Cork, but he's not from there. So t- tell us about his early life. Yeah, he was born into a working class, I suppose, lower middle class family in Manchester. His father was a master butcher and the father relocated the family from Manchester south to Gloucester um, because of work opportunities. And Ian was quite a bright, intelligent child growing up. In fact, uh, so good at his studies that he secured a place in a very prestigious grammar school in Gloucester. He did well at his studies. He showed a particular aptitude for English. And I think that led to um, an interest and a fascination with journalism. So he decided to make journalism his his focus. He attended college, he was trained, and then he joined a freelance agency in Gloucester and later worked for a freelance agency in Cheltenham. And he did quite well. He would have had material supplied to the BBC. He would have worked for the Mirror, the Sun. But it appears that sometimes toward, towards the end of the late 1980s, he became quite disillusioned with life as a freelance journalist. He had had a brief holiday in Ireland with some friends, and he really seemed to like the lifestyle uh, here in Ireland. He travelled to Ireland a second time before deciding that he was going to pack up journalism in the UK. He was going to relocate to Ireland and pursue a much more carefree, I think his dream life was going to be indulging his passions in Ireland for music, for poetry, for literature, for arts and culture. Initially, he, when he arrived in the early 90s, he was based with friends in the Kilmac Thomas area of uh, County Waterford. He worked as a farmhand, then he travelled to West Cork, then he went to Wicklow before moving back to West Cork and securing a job with a fish factory in Skull. And it was while he was working at the fish factory that he met a Welsh artist by the name of Jules Thomas. Um, she's quite a, a well-known um, artist in the West Cork area. A lot of her work would feature in some public buildings and offices across Ireland. And they commenced a relationship and he very quickly moved in to a, a, a kind of an annex of the property that she had at the Prairie 
in Liscaha, which is just outside Skull in West Cork. And they became very much an item. Initially, he stuck with this kind of alternative lifestyle that he was doing things that he would have called New Age gardening. He would have got involved in Boron playing. He would have done odd jobs here and there. And then towards the middle or to the end of the 1990s, he decided he was going to try and resurrect his journalistic career. So he started trying to supply material to some of the local papers in West Cork, some of the papers in Cork, and of course, also some of the national titles. Now, he was doing gardening work for a neighbour of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Is there any evidence that they ever met? Yeah, that's one of the central issues to, I mean, the investigation over the past three decades is is whether Ian Bailey actually knew Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Now, Sophie Toscan de Plantier was a 39-year-old uh, mother of one uh, when she was found battered to death at 10 a.m. in the morning on December the 23rd, 1996. And she was found at the foot of a, a laneway, uh, quite an isolated laneway leading to her property at Tourmore. Ian Bailey always maintained that he did not know Sophie Toscan de Plantier. He said that he had seen her once at a distance and that was while he was doing gardening work for, I think, it was Alfie Lyons, uh, who was a neighbour of Sophie's. Alfie had referred to the fact that there was a French lady living locally. And I think she was in the distance. She might have been pointed out. Now, that's Mr. Bailey's story. And Mr. Lyons, um, who has since passed away, he told Gardy that he was 90 to 95% certain that he had actually introduced the two. But the question of whether Ian Bailey actually knew Sophie Toscan de Plantier remains un- uncertain. A key piece of evidence, though, is him being spotted in the general area on the night in question and then that evidence being recanted. Can you talk us through that? Yeah, Fanon, the the Garda investigation was hampered for a number of different reasons. Number one, there were no eyewitnesses. Number two, they were never able to obtain forensic data. If they had gotten any type of blood spatter or hair spatter or whatever, that would have identified the killer. But but they they were never able to get that. But what Garda obtained was a statement from a lady who was travelling in a car in the early hours of December the 23rd. And she said she saw a gentleman walking with quite a distinctive gait, wearing a dark coloured coat near Cailfada Bridge. And Cailfada Bridge is just down the road from Sophie's house. Anyone looking to access um, Sophie Toscan de Plantier's laneway or, or property would inevitably pass Cailfada Bridge. Now, Ian Bailey said that he had never left the property that he was living at with Jules Thomas. He said that they had been out socialising on the evening of December the 23rd. They had returned home and that he had then left the bedroom to go and work on a late story. And that story was on the kitchen table the following morning. But he maintained that he had never left the property that evening or the early hours of the morning of December the 23rd. Now, this woman who spotted the individual at Cailfada Bridge was interviewed by the Gardaí it transpired that she was Marie Farrell, uh, who was a shopkeeper uh, in Skull. And she was what was later described as the star witness of a 2003 defamation action, which was taken by Mr. Bailey before Cork Circuit Civil Court. Now, Mr. Bailey had sued eight Irish and British newspapers over their coverage of the Sophie Tosca and de Plantier investigation. And he maintained that they had wrongly branded him as the murderer. Now, 
what was remarkable about the 2003 action was that it brought an awful lot of the material from the Garda investigation into the public domain that otherwise would never have come to public attention. And of course, one of the key elements that came into the public domain was what Marie Farrell saw in the early hours of the morning. And her testimony before uh, Cork Circuit Civil Court was absolutely devastating. I mean, I was there and she described Ian Bailey as someone who was threatening her, that she was afraid of him, that all women would be afraid of him, and that she was adamant that he was the person that she had seen. But dramatically, in 2005, Marie Farrell recanted her testimony. She said that what she had said was not the case. She had only given that testimony because she had been placed under duress by the Gardaí and that Ian Bailey was not the individual that she saw at Cale Fodder Bridge. And she apologised to Ian Bailey. Ian Bailey has always maintained it wasn't him. And he's always maintained that whoever it was, was obviously the killer. Now, Mr. Bailey, at the same time, is studying the law. Is that correct? Yes, he enrolled at University College Cork and successfully studied for a law degree and then later got a master's degree. And he, he was an unusual man. I mean, if ever there was an individual that was a contradiction, it was very much Ian Bailey. Um, on the one hand, he was the, an individual that took defamation actions over newspapers reporting of him in connection with the Duplantier case. He was also a man that claimed that his life had become a torture through the media focus. But yet he was the most media-friendly and accessible person. I mean, in 26, 27 years of covering this case, I can never remember an occasion when Ian Bailey didn't answer the phone or didn't immediately call me back if I'd left a message looking for him. He could be polite, he could be charming when it suited him, but yet we also know that this was an individual that had a history of extreme violence towards women in terms of domestic violence incidents. He was also convicted in absentia in Paris for the murder of Sophie Tosca and de Plantier. How do you assess that case now? The French prosecution arose because after the 2003 libel action in Cork, I think everyone, including myself, thought that there was going to be significant and rapid developments in the case, but that didn't happen. The French had been consistently waiting for a breakthrough or a development in Ireland. And I think finally, in frustration at the pace of developments here, um, a group called ASOF, which was the Association for the Truth in Respect to the Death of Sophie Toscan de Plantier, they began campaigning for a French investigation. And under Napoleonic law, the French are fully entitled to launch an investigation into a crime, no matter where it happens on the planet, so long as it involves a French national. And an investigation was launched under a Paris-based magistrate, Patrick Gachon. And for eight to nine years, he conducted an exhaustive investigation. Sophie's body was re-exhumed. The original witnesses in the case were interviewed by a team of elite French detectives who had traveled to West Cork. Gardy gave permission for the, the Garda file to be opened to their French counterparts. And there was a whole new battery of forensic tests were conducted in France. And ultimately, the file that was completed by Magistrate Gachon was passed to an investigating magistrate in Paris. And that panel of magistrates decided that, yes, there was a case to answer. And they sanctioned the prosecution. That prosecution occurred in May of 2019, when Ian Bailey was tried in absentia by the French authorities 
for the murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. Over a five-day hearing, um, significant elements of the Garda investigation were presented to a panel of judges. And on the final day, they deliberated and they convicted Ian Bailey of the killing. Now, he was sentenced to 25 years in prison and he was fined. But of course, the trial was in absentia. Ian Bailey never left Ireland. He maintained that the proceedings in Paris were a show trial, that it was effectively a mockery of justice, and that the French had cherry-picked key elements of the case that suited them, and major elements that worked in Ian Bailey's favour were effectively ignored. So the French were very disappointed that Ireland wouldn't extradite Ian Bailey to France. In fact, they were so disappointed that the actual specific issue was raised by the French President Emmanuel Macron when he made a presidential visit to Ireland a number of years ago. But Ian Bailey remained in West Cork. The consequence for him, however, was that a European arrest warrant remained in place for him and issued by the French authorities. Senator Maloney, can you tell me about your first meeting with Ian Bailey? Yes, the murder of poor Sophie Toscan Duplantier happened hard by Christmas in 1996. And unfortunately, I was tasked to go down, which I you know, very much didn't want to do because it was Christmas. But I went down with a photographer and was told by my news desk, I was working for the Star newspaper at the time, that I would meet our stringer, which means local correspondent who'd been hired for the day, would help us out. And I was told that she'll meet him out on a slope, a rise outside of Skull, County Cork. Well, it took us hours to get down and we were worried about the, uh, I was driving with a photographer, he was worried about the light and so on that was fading fast. And I was worried about making this rendezvous. But lo and behold, when we left Skull, there was this figure against the light and he was like Heathcliff off the moor. And I, I distinctly remember turning to the photographer saying, I, I know West Cork is bohemian, but this is ridiculous. He literally looked as if he'd been dragged through a bush backwards, and he was a huge hulking man. He climbed into what was then a van, and uh, I climbed into the back, and he got into the front. He had to lower himself and bend, and it was quite extraordinary. And over the next half an hour or so as we drove to the scene, he gave me extraordinary infill into what had allegedly happened, and that was the best account that I had had on the spot either before or since in a case like this. When we eventually got to the location and the you know, guard of crime, ribbons were still flapping down below at the scene where there were guards huddled against the cold. We stopped the car to take a, a, a photograph looking down on the scene. I said to Ian, come on, we'll drop down. I was expecting him to vouch for me to the guardie, who I naturally assumed were the source of all these fantastic details he had given me about lights going on and off in the house and the victim being in her night clothes with one boot on that was uh, half laced up, the other one behind her and so on. Like extraordinary graphic details about the running through the briars and all the rest of it. And uh, he said, "Ah, no, no, you're on your own now. I found it absolutely extraordinary before I'd even done any legwork myself that he wasn't coming down to the scene with us. So I went down and of course I got short shrift from the guard. It was all, I've got to contact the press office, contact the press office. And uh, I could have done with somebody uh, vouching for me, you know what I mean, through all these uh, all these uh, people who had provided just extraordinary detail because I naturally assumed um, that Ian Bailey had extraordinary uh, contacts with the guardie and had the inside story. For that reason, I actually suggested to him subsequently, look, I wouldn't feel comfortable filing this material. Um, can I just put it over in your name? And he revolted against that idea. 
which was something I found very strange as well. In a way, it was like, you know, it's an ill wind that blows nobody any good because this was the perfect opportunity for him to make his name on a major sensational murder. And he was actually subsequently reporting for Paris Match and Le Soir and Le Figaro in France. So he did uh, make a lot of money out of this murder. But on that occasion, he didn't want to be anywhere next to near it. Did this arise your suspicions? And at what point did you begin to believe, hang on, this guy was involved more than just a casual local reporter picking up the details? Yeah, I have to suggest that I'm probably the world's worst journalist because uh, I didn't get a flicker of doubt at that point. Um, And even when Ian Bailey questioned me, when he said, come on, you're the the crime correspondent, you tell me who's likely to have killed this person, who... Who would have done it? And I analysed it for him, and I gave him a very quick outline. I said, "Well, look, this is a rage killing by a local man because of the objects that were used, because the person has been overkilled. The murder weapons were just what was lying to hand. Therefore, it wasn't premeditated. If it's not premeditated, somebody hasn't made a long journey there. So it's a local person. The house is very, very hard to find." Ian Bailey expertly guided us there, but on <laughs> attempts to find it again ourselves met with quite a degree of frustration. So I was saying to him, this was carried out by a local man. I said, I think the guards will have this wrapped up in a fortnight, Ian, because, uh, you know, look, at it, it's, it's December. when a tiny lip of land down at the end of Ireland. If you turn that upside down and you have a bag with 400 houses in it, half of them are empty because they're holiday homes. Uh, and then, you know, half the remainder are, are pensioners. So you're looking at somebody who's... Obviously a powerful person because the victim was overkilled with 50 or more blows. Her head was virtually obliterated. So you're looking for a powerful man aged 25 to 40. And that's what I said to Ian. And he didn't say anything at the time. But I didn't have any suspicions either. I was looking at a powerful man aged 25 to 40. In fact, he was 39 at the time. He was the same age as Sophie. And uh, the scales only fell from my eyes, I have to say, when... Ian Bailey was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantier. Now, there's a couple of other aspects of Ian Bailey's character that would also arouse suspicion. Does he have a history of violence? Well, he does. And in fact, um, a judge in Ireland um, concluded on the hearing of libel cases brought by Ian Bailey that he was that he had no doubt he was a violent man. Immediately after Ian Bailey's uh, arrest and after a subsequent interview with him, myself and the photographer uh, who attended that interview and took pictures, in one of which Ian, Ian Bailey is pouring me a cup of tea very nicely, we were both convinced of his guilt and uh, proposed to our news desk that we should go to his home in Gloucester and in, in Cheltenham and gather details on him. And when we did so, we found lurid tales about threats and a bitter, acrimonious divorce from his first wife, Sarah Limbrick. And then also tales about Avon and Somerset police wanting to question him in relation to what the Limbrick said was the forging of an insurance policy on her life in the amount of uh, a quarter of a million pounds sterling. It had all been very acrimonious. Various members of his set talked about in having a temper, liking to push situations as far as they would go. His employers uh, said the same. An ex-girlfriend said he liked to stoke things up and wind people up. And then there was this uh, abrupt relocation of Ian Bailey, the successful journalist, to Ireland, where he was in dead-end jobs uh, as a fish gutter and so on. And he never returned to England. 
Now, it gradually emerged, of course, that he had, prior to the death of Sophie, he had carried out several violent assaults on his partner, with whom he was living at the time. And when he brought libel actions against a series of newspapers suggesting that he was a violent man, his diary was opened to the court, which he had actually given to a neighbour because he knew the guards were already suspicious of him. The neighbour gave it to the guard. It was acquired by the newspapers on discovery. And in the first place, Ian Bailey's sexual appetites, uh, which were extreme, um, but also recounted some of his assaults, amazingly enough, on on his partner. There were three assaults um, discussed in court, and there were subsequent uh, assaults, and there were two hospitalizations. And the court heard about one case in which Bailey attacked his partner with a crutch that he was using when his leg was in plaster. There was an audible gasp amongst the uh, onlookers when he said that this had happened because she she pulled the crutch towards her and he put it into the passive voice. He said it would have come in contact with her. He said on occasions in the past when we have drink, it has led to violence. I have a temper, is what he said. And then there was an, an issue when after one beating, he would not give um, the victim's daughter the keys of the car to take her to hospital. He was preventing his injured partner being brought to hospital, and a neighbour was forced to intervene uh, and to take her there. And subsequently, there, there was a, a barring order. But at this libel trial in uh, 2003, the, uh, the senior counsel, Paul Gallagher, he read from the diary, and Bailey wrote, I am an animal on two feet. Bailey claimed he was uh, he was writing in a particular style, it didn't mean anything. And Mr. Gallagher went on and, and quoted from a, a diary entry on May the 6th of 1996. And that's very important. Again, that's just six months, if you like, before the killing of Sophie. One act of whiskey-induced madness and in an act of awful violence, I severely damaged you and made you feel death was near, he wrote. He was describing the vicious assault on his partner. And he said on evidence that 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 was written in an abstract form. And when questioned about this entry, he said, death is always near. It isn't to be taken literally. What of the night of the murder? There was obviously much focus on Ian Bailey's whereabouts that night and injuries that appeared on his body in subsequent days. So what what was his explanation for all this? Yeah, uh, Ian Bailey had been drinking with his partner in the courtyard in Skull and they had a lot to drink and then they were driving home and he stopped on a, on a particular, particular height to look at the moon because there was a, there was a moon out and he had a, they were reportedly an obsession with the moon. He had a moon stick he used to take for, uh, out at night for when he was walking and he gazed across the, uh, and the valley and, and saw a light on in either Sophie's house or in Alfie Lyons's house. Now we know Sophie was up that that night because at midnight she was speaking to her husband by phone while she was in bed. The initial evidence of Ian Bailey and his partner was that they subsequently started up the car again, went home and went to bed. But on foot of their arrest and separate questioning, first of all his partner admitted that Ian Bailey had left the house that night. When confronted with this account, Ian Bailey agreed that he had left the house, but he had said he had just gone to an outhouse they have some distance away in order to uh, to write an article. Then he had come back to bed 
and he, he had been writing again in the kitchen and so forth. But the joint evidence, if you like, was that they, from themselves was that he had left the house and the bed that night. He wasn't in the bed uh, with his partner. Now we know now we know that somebody went to Sophie's house and knocked on the back door. Sophie, as I said, was in bed. So instead of dialing 999, because she didn't do that, um, we must assume that she called out as to who was there. And then she would have been presumably reassured by the answer as to who was there. Somebody giving their name that she knew because she went, then went downstairs and opened the back door. And as we know, she then fled from her attacker, ran down the slope to try and get out the front gate, ran through an enormous bush of briars and was pursued um, through the briars uh, before being stopped by a blow of a rock to the back of her head, which made her fall over. And then she was uh, pummeled and repeatedly beaten with a large slate and then had a concrete block dropped on her head. Now, subsequently, Ian Bailey had a lot of scratches on his face and arms. He had a nick in his hairline. This was seen and described by several witnesses. And I subsequently asked him about the scratches. Now, it's important to know that he had said to the Gardaí that the scratches were obtained by cutting down Christmas trees. And that's what he said to me in my first interview with him following his release from his first detention. And I laid down my pen. I said to him, Ian, who the hell buys a Christmas tree on the 23rd of December? Because that's the day the body was found. And I can still see in my mind's eye his mouth opening and closing and opening and closing, gulping like a goldfish. At that point, he said, well, I also killed turkeys. But the penny really dropped for me then. What about your encounters with him over the years? Did, did you did you ever express your reservations about him or your your views on him? Well, naturally, I gave very many views to the Gardaí. They took a lot of statements for me. In fact, they were only up with me a fortnight ago talking about these uh, investigations in Gloucester, Bristol and Cheltenham. I, I, I had naturally some dealings with Ian Bailey offering him rights of reply frequently. After our interview across a kitchen table, we never had a case where I was making accusations against him. I left that to the Gardaí. But I do vividly remember a very difficult situation whereby I was the crime correspondent and I was writing stories about the investigation when it was going on at the very early stages and having spoken to local detectives and so on, all the evidence was towards a local perpetrator and yet Ian Bailey was writing these lurid stories about a French connection and a contract killer and her husband, Daniel, being estranged, she having various lovers, the husband wanting her dead and so on and so forth. And I remember going up to the news desk and protesting about this because we were we were saying contradictory things to the to the readers. And it subsequently emerged that the Gardaí had asked the newspaper to continue taking material from Ian Bailey, freelance material, against the possibility that he, that he might incriminate himself. Mm. What do you believe the reaction will be to to Bailey's death? Well, in the first place in West Cork, there will be a, a huge amount of relief for people who have had to live with this overbearing shadow and the long-running saga, which Ian Bailey stoked up himself. I mean, he did not make his denials and leave it at that. He inserted himself repeatedly into the story over and over again. He kept reminding his friends and neighbours of what had happened, and very many people were frankly scared of him. So I think the the overall atmosphere would be one of relief. The question about the uh, 
who killed Sophie remains because it hasn't properly been established. It could go on for decades. There are now high hopes, however, that the cold case review could make a dramatic DNA breakthrough by means of the huge developments that have taken place in that science over the years, such that perhaps particles might yet be recovered from recesses in the rock and the block and the slate that were used to inflict such catastrophic damage on her head, uh, as well as possible touch DNA on the night clothes she was wearing that night when she was done to death. And my thanks to Senan Maloney and before him, Ralph Regal. I'm Fiannan Sheehan, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was produced by Garrett Mulhall, researched by Mary Carroll, with sound by Gavin Hennessy. Archive clips from the BBC, RTE, News Talk, France Van Cat, AFP, Netflix, The Sun and The Irish Independent. If you've been affected by this podcast, you could find a list of support groups by searching The Irish Independent for someone to talk to. And if you enjoy the Indo-Daily, don't forget to like, follow and leave us a review. Shachtan, an Indo Askeliga. Time in mon irukti yen of chacht erachor. Agus suligam a makan sho gurfeder erachor in uik kart lenav winter fein. Skilti fis turmi. Tashe dochrecha nach vetoch ara igornamyan on kestion echo. Vien talam aginam griv orkar nrachtum. Yatakshe tarin griven orkar son ilistuha lagus kimena fracht gora klixar dukashen echer. Only ven own tardarakshishin ven marav. Shachtan. Find us on all the usual podcast platforms.